Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Today, we are taking a break from all the excitement of the Lambeth Conference. And we're going to go down, down, down to the micro level of leadership. Who is taking us down to this micro level? Well, we're speaking with someone who never thought that she could be a leader at all until she discovered that she was called to be a leadership expert and to disrupt and heal some patterns of Christian leadership that are prevalent today. But first, a couple of pieces of news for you. Many of you will have already heard that the executive director of the Living Church, Dr. Christopher Wells, has just been named the Anglican Communion's new director of Unity, Faith, and Order. He plans to stick around a few more months with TLC for the transition, but then he will be moving on to his new post in the London area. Also exciting, he's soon to be married to a lovely, kind, and very funny woman named Laura. Double congratulations, Christopher. Well, I guess that was already a couple pieces of news, but I actually have a third. And I've never told you this before. Shame on me, because we have a man behind the curtain who has been making this thing run for two and a half years, the Reverend Andrew Russell. He has been our editor and our sound production guy, and he's taking his leave from us to concentrate on full-time ministry. And I induced him to hop on a microphone and say a brief goodbye. So here is my little exit interview with Andrew. Father Andrew, <laughs> we'll just, we're just going to call him Andrew. Andrew yeah. has been our podcast producer for the last two years. Yay. <laughs> so I'm curious, what are one or two of your favorite episodes? Well, it's got to be, I mean, when Rowan Williams interviews uh Marilyn Robinson oh my gosh you know that's that's a that's a a hallmark show but I think my all-time favorite it was actually a very early episode when we had, I know what you're gonna say um is it uh Ryan Flanagan yeah. is that right is that his yep. name yeah Ryan and Melissa um, Flanagan mm -hmm. yeah from liturgical folk when they prayed morning prayer with their family and and sang a lot of it that was just a really fun episode to hear and um 
I still often, when I'm doing morning prayer, I will at least sing their version of the Apostles' Creed. Um, yeah, that was that was a really fun one. And it's all been downhill from there. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Over the last two years. <laughs> well, I am incredibly grateful to you, Andrew. You've done an awesome job. Is there anything that you would want to say in farewell? Thanks for listening. It's been a blast to be able to listen along with you and to be able to work on this for you. So thanks. Keep listening. This week's episode is the work of our brand new producer, Drew Miller. Drew is a veteran podcaster, and he's done media production and content creation for such venerable initiatives as The Rabbit Room. Welcome, welcome, Drew. Let's jump in to today's episode. My guest is a friend of a friend. Actually, I should say she is the mentor of a friend with a refreshing and hard-won take on leadership that focuses on the way we use our physical selves in space in order to assert or share power. Where does power come from? Why do some people just walk in a room and seem to have it, to have the it factor? What do you do if you have the it factor? And what do you do if you don't have it at all? Is it okay ever to just tell a garrulous person in a meeting that they're taking up too much space and they need to stop talking? Maybe some of you have just dreamed of doing that occasionally, but we'll talk about that today. Whether you have a lot of natural influence, our guest says, power is our God-given birthright to steward and to steward well, and how we use it starts with the body. Today's episode was inspired by a listener named Parker who wrote to me and said, can we have an episode on Christian leadership that's applicable across different vocations? I thought it was a great idea. And while we do talk a lot about what this means for ministry, I hope, Parker, that you hear plenty for your context too. And so for the rest of you, don't be shy. After you listen to an episode and leave your sparkling review, email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org and send a suggestion for our topic hopper. You never know what I will pick up next. Our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Mary-Kate Morse. Mary-Kate is Executive Dean of the Portland Seminary of George Fox University, and she is Lead Mentor for the Leadership and Spiritual Formation, Demon Track. She has taught for nearly 30 years in New Testament Greek, spiritual formation, leadership, and organizational change, and she serves as a spiritual director for evangelists and church planters. She's the author of Lifelong Leadership, Woven Together Through Mentoring Communities, Making Room for Leadership, Power, Space, and Influence, which we'll talk about a lot in the conversation today, and A Guidebook to Prayer, 24 Ways to Walk with God. We are so happy to have Mary-Kate on today, so let's get cracking. We hope you enjoy the conversation. You're a Quaker pastor. Do I have that correct? Yes, I'm recorded by the evangelical friends. Okay. I'm not pastoring right now in a traditional sense. As a leader, I'm always pastoring. So are you the Reverend Dr. Mary-Kate Morse? I know that's a bit fancy, but... That is fancy and very much not what Quakers do, but <laughs> that's all the titles, yes. Well, Mary-Kate, it's a joy to have you here today. I'm happy to be a part of this and to talk with you, Amber. Quick note for our listeners that I am recording from my apartment, which is doubles as my recording studio, and it's such a beautiful day. We finally broke that heat wave, so I've got the windows open. So if you hear ambient noises, yes, I live beside a train track, and we may hear some trains, we may hear some birds, we might hear the mailman. 
So Mary Kate, you're in, are you living in Newburgh, Oregon? No, I actually live in Portland, Oregon, and I'm actually in my home office. And so I too might have ambient noises because I have a little dog at my feet. Now, I've never been to Oregon. So can you please just start us off by telling me something that I need to know about Oregon? I played a lot of Oregon Trail as a child, but obviously I never made it. I always lost an axle or a team of oxen or something. So never made it to Oregon. I think it's one of the most beautiful. It is the most beautiful state in the United States. It has the coastal range and the West Coast beaches, and then it has Mount Hood. And we have high desert, beautiful high desert. And Portland is weird. We're kind of known as the <laughs> weird people. No one quite gets us, which is fine. And people come for our voodoo donuts and Powell's bookstores and, you know, food carts, all that coffee. You've sold me. I'm there. Yeah. When can I come? Anytime. Mary-Kate, you are someone who has this multifaceted vocation, which is so interesting. Now, in all of this, how did you decide to become somebody who, as part of your vocation, analyzes and interprets power? Can you tell us a little bit about your story and, and how you came to that? I never imagined that the kind of life that I am leading is the one that I would lead. I grew up in a family that was very dysfunctional and a mother who was histrionic and had many affairs, a father who was gone and rather harsh. And she left when we were little. It was just this place where you had to sort of figure things out on your own really soon and I received a call very young before I even would say I walked much with God, that God spoke to me and said that I would serve God one day. But when I came to faith in college and I started to try to work that out, I just had so many difficulties and I I couldn't figure out what God had called me to be. I, I wasn't able to find that path because of my, well, gender and the way I looked. And also because I hadn't been raised to think of myself in ways where I felt like I had agency. And I was always really intrigued with the fact that some people could just come into a place and all of a sudden there was excitement and people were paying attention to what they had to say. And so I decided to study it. So I just started researching it. I was just reading everything I could find, leadership literature and, and the social sciences, even in biology, mm. about animals and how they are territorial and spaces. Like sort of alpha beta dynamics, that kind of thing. Yeah, all those sorts of things. I just read and read. And once I started putting language to it, it was like a no brainer. I mean, the thing is, everyone gets it when I talk about it, but no one has language or frames for understanding what happens with power in groups. And so I wanted to figure out what is actually happening and what would Christ have us do? And so I got into the New Testament, reading about Jesus. And in my doctoral work, I studied Jesus as a transformational leader and was really intrigued by how he embodied you know, his presence and how he used power. And then I was trying to figure out, well, then can you change it? Can you change how you as an individual and which you can, that's not the hard part. The hard part is helping a group sort of think of itself differently around this use of power. And so that's where I got into all the economics of power and saw power primarily as a socially constructed thing. 
Hmm. And as something that has, it is used like, like money, like social capital. So there's an economic sensibility to it. And so what I wanted to do was help other people and help groups and churches have language to understand it, to steward it well, and to have safe conversations and to hold leaders accountable, to feel like they had a tangible way to hold a leader accountable. Absolutely. So I'm hearing you say that that power is just something we all pick up on. Animals pick up on it. You know, they can see it, they can sense it, they can smell it, and and we can too, but that it needs structure, it needs language. It's like this game that we all know is going on that we're playing, but it's really important that someone says, okay, time out. Here are the parameters of the game. By the way, here are the rules that we're going to follow in this game. And so that's kind of the difference between seeing and sensing that power is operating for the good or for the bad in a situation and actually being able to talk about what's going on. Am I hearing that right? You're hearing that correct. And and power is is a neutral thing because God created us to be people who were like God so that we would have agency, we could make a difference, we could change, we could work together, we could could influence environments and create cultures and families and communities. So we would all need to be created with that capacity. So that capacity in us to sort of understand that we have significance and purpose, we have something to do together, is what, what power is all about. How then you use it is the key there that is when it becomes an ethical issue but power in and of itself is is morally neutral yes where does power start where does it come from well power is something you're born with so a baby comes out ready to express itself say what its needs are when it's uncomfortable when it wants to be changed or fed or held or played with So it's part of our aliveness. Our sense of personal agency is usually formed in the home. And so when a child is loved, a child is valued, a child is given opportunities to express herself or himself, to explore, to learn, and everything is just cherished, special, that begins to develop within oneself a sense of, I have a place in this world. And I can make a contribution or I can I can act in this world. So that sense of personal power is very important. It's created in family units and in communities. But then there's social power, which is then you bring in your personal sense of self and your agency, your, your sense of who you are and what you can contribute. You bring that into a group. Now, whether the group receives it or not is another whole thing. Right. Usually people with personal power it's a little bit easier to step into a social setting and and try to navigate it because they were imbued with that sense of rightness that I'm here, I'm created to be here. I, you know, I want to play with y'all. I want to do things. I want to explore and sort of comes as a natural thing. Some people have to sort of figure that out or you're in a marginalized group, like you're a person of color. So that even, even in the eight, in the agency making in your home, there's this other layer of caution mm-hmm. that is like, well, some th- places are safe and some are not. Some people are safe. You can talk certain ways or not. So that l- extra level of navigating is added on women usually and 
persons of color or marginalized like immigrants or people that are differently abled all have that extra level of trying to navigate in a social setting. I'd love to dive into this complexity with you, Mary-Kate, a bit more. One thing that you do in your book in terms of language, you spoke about the importance of language. And so far we've been using power, influence interchangeably, but you do differentiate somewhat between power, influence, and space as separate aspects of how we relate to others and how we participate in a group. So could you break down for us the differences between these, how they relate and differ. But I want to give us a framework for this. And the framework is going to be a childhood framework and an adulthood framework. So power, space, and influence, how could we see it at work on a playground? And how could we see power, space, and influence at work in a business meeting? So power is the ability to cause or prevent change. I like the sandbox analogy because we all been there, done that. So for power, the child would get into the sandbox and the child would be able to build what, what she wanted, you know, or she could change things. And influence would be then a child who would say, let's do this. And they would start a game and everybody would say, yeah, let's, let's, let's do that. Uh, and space is just the boundaries of where that group of people are. So negotiating, figuring out, okay, I want to play in the sandbox. I want to do this. I want to do that. That's your power. Your influence is then say, hey, let's do something together. That's your influence. And the space is the sandbox. So in, in a meeting, in, in, a, in a work setting, it's a little more complicated now because it depends on how the person has come to understand who he or she is. So they bring that into a room. You always bring that into the room with you. So if you've already figured out ways to play the game, either by being quiet or by taking up a lot of space or observation or over-functioning, you know, whatever it is, you, you bring that into a room. So you're in a meeting. So there's your space. You have an opinion on something. So you can cause or prevent change just by saying, well, I think blah, blah, blah. And in influence would be, hey, if we do it this way, you know, it's sort of trying to get the whole group on the same page, but you're trying to influence that meeting towards a certain outcome. And so it's, it's more than just having an opinion. But if you don't have the power, you're, you won't have influence. So if people don't perceive you as someone who they can trust to influence them in the way that will help them, then you can have a voice, but you won't have influence. Hmm. Now we're starting to come back to what you mentioned earlier about power being neutral, being something that's can be used one way or the other. And in a couple of attitudes among Christians that I think that we've all observed that we have held at one time or another in relation to power. So going back to that business meeting, let's think of a person who's leading the meeting as well as a person who is coming to the meeting. And so one or other of these people thinks to themselves that power is something that we should always be suspicious of as Christians. We should be embarrassed about it or ashamed of it if we have it. We shouldn't really use power or we should rarely use it because power means 
that you're probably going to overturn someone else's will because we're sinful creatures or you're going to end up manipulating someone. So it'll always be abused in some way. So I want to be a servant. I don't want to be someone with power. But then we have another person who comes into the meeting. I'm already laughing because I'm thinking of an example of both like an attendee to the meeting and the one leading it who have the perspective that there is no reason to look critically at my own power. Power is great in all ways. And in fact, let's just directly apply an unmodified corporate model to how we run this ministry, or, or let's be uncritical about applying any model of power we find convenient because we are using it to further the kingdom of God. So in this business meeting, Mary Kate, you are there, you're observing, you know, you're consulting. What do both of these perspectives miss? What might you say to people who hold either of these perspectives and, and help them out? That's a great question. We think about like servant leadership, sort of like they're two different things, the servant, the leader. Either you have people erring on the side of just the serving part, or you have people erring on the side of leadership part, and they don't know how to put those two things together. Power is something that we are given by God. And so for someone to say, well, I shouldn't, you know, I should just listen and not say anything is actually abdicating their role in what God's trying to do in that community. I'm just going to listen and do whatever people ask me to do. Instead of kingdom picture, which is all of us are around God's table and we all partake, we all have to do that. So it's, I think it's a kind of a pride, but also a coping mechanism for some because they don't, they're afraid that mm. if they say something, get it wrong, or they'll look stupid, or they have already picked up signals that their voice doesn't matter. And so they decide, well, nobody cares what I have to say. So I'm just going to do my job and take home my paycheck and not say anything. So I think they have a moral obligation to bring their voice to the table because in a sense, they're canceling themselves out. They're deciding I don't matter. Well, can and I ask you a specific question here? What can go wrong when a meeting leader doesn't speak up if they're abdicating power? And what could go wrong when an attendee to a meeting doesn't speak up? So the person in charge and the person who's not in charge, either of these folks says, you know what, I'm just a servant here. I'm not a leader and, and misses out on that aspect of stewarding their own voice. When the attendee to the meeting doesn't say anything, uh, they miss out what God might be saying through them to bring to the group a perspective that nobody sees or an insight, uh, a, a flavor, a, a, a way to uh, build this thing together. So it's like you're trying to build something, but parts of the building materials are left in, in front of you. You don't contribute. I would, I would say to them, you have to talk. Every time you have to talk, you have to say something. I make them say something. So that they get used to putting their voice out there and, and they get comfortable with the idea that they're part of the team and that it's, it's a team and not just two people or three people and the rest of you are all sitting. If the leader abdicates his or her authority, because the leader is the guardian of the group, the guardian of the group. So if the leader doesn't set boundaries for how we are going to manage this conversation, always somebody will fill the gap. And they're no longer the leader. They're just kind of like standing on the side. The sheep are running crazy. 
somebody's doing what they want to do, and you end up with a decision nobody really likes, but the leader did not have the courage to step in and set boundaries. Their role is to create this very vibrant, alive community to try to discern and work towards God's purposes for whatever call or act that is, whether it be business or sacred. I think it's all the same. And so you have to be the guardian of over that, steward that and tell someone you've heard enough from them or they've talked enough. You say, I, I'd like to hear so-and-so and so-and-so. And as a leader of a group, I have actually gone to people and said, I don't want you to talk next time we meet. Ooh. I know. I said, Ouch. yeah, and, and I want you to be quiet to see what happens in that group. Or I've gone and I've told them, I said, okay, you can talk. You have to wait for three people to talk. You can talk for one minute and one time. They have no perception of how much space they're taking up. And I think that's why churches get so toxic mm. is because elders and leaders are holding each other accountable to the highest understanding of what Jesus is trying to do in that place among all of them. And in your book, you use the example of meetings as one of the places where spiritual and leadership truth come out into the open. And you say, do not look down on meetings. Don't say, oh boy, another meeting and just check out because that is where the rubber meets the road in terms of seeing how these power dynamics are coming out and looking at the power dynamics, looking at your effectiveness as a team. And speaking of toxicity, this also makes me think, Mary-Kate, of the way that bitterness and resentment can be yeah. built up in the people who yeah. feel like they're not being given a chance, but they also don't take the chance. I wonder if you could help anyone who might be listening who has a sticky situation in which they're not sure how much they should push for their own power versus be given more power because it does take two to tango, but sometimes the tango needs to happen and one person just ain't, just ain't tangoing. So, so is there a way that you, let's say you have some staff or you have a, a leader who's a toxic leader, but you say, you know what? I want to really shoot for health in this organization. I want to shoot for health on this team, even if I have to manage up or try to manage these folks that are troublesome. What are some of the first steps to figuring out how to make something work when not everybody is on board with this idea? Yeah, that is a very tough question because I think we have a poor immature developed view of power. We don't know how to talk about it with each other. We don't know how to hold people accountable for it. And so we get into these situations where you have a toxic person or a person who just needs it to be all about himself or herself and who runs over people, who is abusive, belittling. I mean, this happens in the church where the person believes, the leader believes that somehow they've got God's mantle and therefore they have the right to sort of take over. Well, and they do look whatever. good in that mantle, Mary-Kate. They look real good. Yeah, they do. And it's intimidating. And this is how the world constructs 
and distorts the good things that God has done and given us. Just look at Jesus's life. Jesus wasn't just saying, I want to do what you want, which is the kind of over-functioning on the servant part. Like, what do you need? I'm going to make it. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> Jesus had a very clear sense of, of his identity, his calling, his purpose, but he he always built a community and invested in them and brought them along and equipped them to do the work so that his role was multiplying what God was trying to do in the world. We have the Holy Spirit. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we all carry this around, particularly as Christians. And it's then our work to disrupt the world's interpretation of power and listen for what is God's. And the only way to do that is to have a diverse group at the table and to hear and listen together and have a mature leader and elders who are willing to grow and think about this. Now, if you have that situation where you have a toxic leader, toxic setting, they're really, usually, there is rarely anything you can do about it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't stay like mm, maybe mm -hmm. a children's pastor in a toxic church. Well, the children need to be cared for. Mm, mm -hmm. And the children, you can create this whole little world of, of wonderfulness for kids. And the families and parents, you can do that. You can also speak into the toxicity, but there's a wisdom to how to do it. And I think it really requires a lot of prayer. At some point, then you, you discern whether, is this where I want to spend my life in this sandbox where I'm over here in the corner, but my soul is, is worn down. It's very difficult for someone on their own to just go in and change it but it happens. I mean, it happens. You think of Rosa Parks, for instance, her one act, her one simple act of civil disobedience by sitting down on that bus seat. But there was also a plan going on. That's right. And then you think of a man in Tenement Square that stood there with his grocery bag in front of the tank. Do you remember that? I, I've seen pictures picture. of it. Yeah. It's iconic. I mean, the, the disproportion of power to powerlessness mm -hmm. and and this massive, aggressive, hostile, mm. killing force in this man with his little grocery basket, just mm. standing there quietly, the power of that to surprise and disrupt. So there is prophetic power that sometimes you're called to do things or say things or be in spots that you pay attention to and you, you follow through. We are thrilled to announce at The Living Church the release of the first two volumes under our brand new publishing imprint, Living Church Books. The books are God Wills Fellowship, Lambeth Conference 1920, and the Ecumenical Vocation of Anglicanism, and When Churches in Communion Disagree. Ian Markham, the Dean of Virginia Theological Seminary, says this remarkable collection of essays brings wisdom, insight, and careful analysis to the complexities of living with disagreement an important book that has the potential to change the contours of the debate. What is this communion that we're in? What is its calling into the future? Please join us in that conversation. You can find both volumes in paperback on Amazon or click the link in the show notes today. So what if we're, we're ready to explore this and to change things? How do we start? Could you give us two to three points 
of advice besides reading Mary Kate's book, which you should do. What are what are two to three starting points that you would give folks? I saw this happen recently. I was watching a a sermon and there was a moment in the sermon and it was like it, it was very obvious that there was power that was coming out of this. And so I think the first thing is when there is a moment like that, the first thing to do is sit down together and say, well, what happened? What did you observe? What did what did you experience? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? Is something happening here for us that God's trying to cause us to pay attention to? Maybe someone comes into a congregation and tells a story and it just throws everybody off. Instead of just moving on or trying to fix, oh, well, let's do this. This is sit down and say, what, what is going on? What is the spirit trying to say or do among us? And tell that story enough that you began to gather a sense, a, a narrative for what happened. And then I think the second thing after that is to say, well, then, Lord, you have shown up in our midst. What are we to do? And so you go to prayer. We're just going to hold this before God and ask for God's guidance on what to do. Because we have seen something we didn't expect or know or understand before, and now we see it. And then after that, you get together and talk about, well, what did we hear? This moment happened. We prayed about it. What have we heard? And then, well, what is one step of obedience that we could take in response to this? And it doesn't have to be giant. It could say, we need to hear more of these stories, or we need to read about this or understand it. We need to put a group together, people who are going to really explore this and bring this back to us and help us help us get it. But what, what evil does in the world is overwhelm us with the next urgent thing to do. And we miss God walking through a room. We miss it. And, and so that's what I would say is if there is that sort of moment that everyone recognizes that you talk about it, you pray about it, you talk again about it, and then take a small step of obedience. Because if everyone felt it, God was probably doing something. I remember several years ago, there was an idea that came to my mind that I thought, should I do this? Should I not do it? And I found it really, it would have been a, like a bold ministry move, but it also just might have been really stupid. Yeah. And it, it caused me some panic. So I went to a spiritual director and I said, I need to figure out, is this God or is this just me? Or is this the devil messing with me? What is this? And so she said, well, this is an interruption that that has happened. So it's good you're paying attention to this that that bothered you. But you know what, Amber, even if, you know, if this is God speaking to you, he'll talk again. He'll say it again. Don't worry. So don't act from a place of panic or we got to fix this now to get rid of the uncomfortable feeling. But rather, as you say, if there's an interruption in the life of your team or the life of your church or, hey, the life of your family, that something's off and everyone notices, if it's the Lord, you know, it's sobering to think that you could go for years in the ministry and miss what God has been trying to say. But I'm also grateful that God is patient and often you will come across that awkward situation or that weird kind of moment 
more than once if you don't listen the first time. Unfortunately, they can then get stronger and maybe get worse over time. So it's best to catch them as early as you can, I would think. When it's from God, it always brings us up to light. And it is scary. There's some other wonderful thing going on that I could be a part of. So I do like your spiritual directors. I think it's a really great wisdom. If it's an interruption from God, then you will not escape it. If you carry it, carry it with prayer. That makes perfect sense. And I think that what you say will resonate with a lot of people who are listening in many kinds of situations of discernment. I wonder if we could talk for a few minutes about leading with the body, using the body that you have in space. We've talked about using the voice, using your opinion, making certain kinds of choices in leadership, suggesting things, asking people to be quiet in a meeting. But I wonder about stewarding those things that we don't have much control over, if any, like our face, our hair, if our voice is a bass or a soprano, how tall we are. And these things can have a lot of influence in a space too. They Absolutely. can also signal power or not, and they, they can be stewarded well or not. Could you give us a few examples of stewarding our physical selves for the good of a community? Well, I think, I think first of all, is just unpacking the difference between how the world interprets who we are and how God interprets who we are. And so the world, when it sees each one of us, we are socialized to make unconscious assessments whenever we see people. And they're very fast, less than a tenth of a second. We've made a judgment. And it's very hard to change that judgment once that judgment is made. It's called the adaptive unconscious. Hmm. And, and we are pressed in the mold of this world, which says, that when you look a certain way, or you're a certain gender, or a certain ethnicity, or a certain economic status, that you have automatically more presence when you walk into a room. So if you're a white male, you're tall, you're good looking, then that's impressive. I mean, people notice. And so they naturally see that person as someone most likely able to be a leader in that group. And on the other hand, somebody female, maybe Asian, small, quiet, less confidence in that person. I mean, that's what the world says. That's changing, of course, continues to change. But in Christian settings, and even among evangelicals, people who see Christ as our Lord and Savior, oftentimes we fall prey to uh, the traditional world's view of value of people. So if we buy into that, if we buy into the fact, well, I'm just this, I'm just a woman, I'm not, I'm not good looking, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a wheelchair, I'm the wrong color, I don't have any education, I don't have any money to dress nice, we automatically dismiss capacity for us to have influence in a social group. So if we have Christ in us, there is nothing about us that isn't impressive. Nothing. Because we're bringing God into every social space. Because we have acknowledged God is our Lord and Savior. We have the power of God living through us. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. So we're impressive when we walk into a room. But pe people don't 
embody that. They let their bodies say one thing, and then in their head, they carry this other notion. Hmm. So the, the body is the thing that speaks first and loudest. And once that speaks, it's really hard to change that impression in a group. Unless you walk in, say you walk in for the first time, and you walk in with confidence that you're bringing in Christ, and that you matter as part of that, whatever setting you're in. I mean, I was at the end of the social spectrum as very depressed and broken, poorly used, blonde woman to who I am today. It's just, you know, I've, I've had people come up and say to me, gosh, you're little. And because they, <laughs> well, they say, I just, you just seem so giant. <laughs> And I think, well, it's nothing because I I am so confident that I am never alone. I'm always with God. I'm a representative of God. I bring that. I bring Christ with me everywhere I go so that I've learned to embody that. I have prayer things I used to do. Now, it's a little more natural, but I had little prayer things. I carried a cross because I had a lot to learn. I had a lot of ground to cover to go from being this beaten down, depressed thing to being who God imagined I could be when I was set free in Christ. But I have to be part of that journey. It's not magical. It's a, it's a journey of embracing fully God's vision for you. It's embracing that fundamental spiritual truth that I am a child of the King and I can walk into a room protected and loved redeemed, guided, and I am not alone. And and so there's a confidence in that. Your body brings in the body of Christ. That's beautiful. Thank you for that, Mary-Kate. I, I love the story that you tell in the book about a guy who was in charge of a ministry and needed to make this huge systemic change that if you just looked at it on paper, you would think, Oh, no way. Nobody who could possibly make that change that requires that much buy-in, that much turnover of, of where resources are allocated and identity and no way, like the thing would fall apart. Well, this change was made successfully and the guy who's in charge of this ministry is like five foot two. And he was, he's a very quiet, he's a very soft spoken, very quiet demeanor. Uh, he That's had a very wonderful. gentle soul. That's just so wonderful. And and I think when he the you described his stewardship of his body and his power in a space as being one where he he doesn't wear elevator shoes and talk louder and right. try to be bossy. He's who he is and and his benefit is to say, look, I'm a non-threatening presence and I've got an edge on being a non-threatening and a non-anxious presence. Therefore, I can get in and make change and leverage who I am for the kingdom without changing those things or without despising the gifts that I have. I just think that's such a beautiful story. I'm, I'm so glad. It's a lovely story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mary-Kate, I am so grateful that we were able to have you here today. Is there anything that you would like to add to our listeners to encourage them. I'll tell you, we're doing this episode because someone emailed me 
and said, look, I'm not a pastor. I'm in the military and I'm a Christian. So I'm a Christian leader, but I don't necessarily pastor a church. So can we do something on leadership? So we have many listeners who are clergy. We have other listeners who are lay leaders, others that work a job and love God. What is a word of encouragement that mm. you might want to give them today? Mm. Well, in today's world, I am very grateful for every single person who is faithful to their call, no matter where it is, whether it's in a school or a hospital or the military or in, in a sacred what is usually called, you know, like a pastorate or something. Every person who says, I love the Lord and am going to be faithful to follow. And, and I'm just so grateful because it's not easy. It's not easy to be that person today. So I'm grateful for them. And, and I would say for such a time as this, we need them. There's such a distortion of who Christ is, with what it means to be a Christian, live a faithful life, it's been so twisted and so built into political and social agendas on wherever, whichever, where you are. It's just, it's not, I don't see Christ in it. And so to encourage, encourage the faithful to be Christ and see themselves by embodying Christ wherever they go, embodying the love and the light of Christ. And that's not just being kind and nice. I think we, we sort of, bring it down to some little sweetness, like write a little sweet note or a little smile. It's, it's powerful. People can tell when you walk into a place with Christ. People can tell that you're different. You don't have to say anything. You just bring in that gentle, quiet, mystical presence of Christ and let Christ live through you and paying attention to what the Holy Spirit might be saying for you to do or say in that situation because when you follow Christ there's a lot of like no brainers <laughs> there's like a lot of no brainers and there's enough no brainers that it would keep us pretty busy but we get distracted <laughs> by these other grasps for power and influence that I think are quite dark because it it means in order to hold these views you have to dismiss the needs and the a dignity of a whole lot of other people. And Christ never did that. He never did that. He called the religious leaders into account. He loved everybody. He, he, sometimes he loved you by telling you to stop talking during the meeting. It's exactly. also what he did. And so to, to be on mission where you are and to be a humble, gentle presence, whether you're six foot three with a loud voice and a huge personality and a career in musical theater, or you're five foot nothing, quiet, slow to speak, and, you know, wear beige sweaters every day of your life. If you're living faithfully, humbly, sharing power, bringing the Holy Spirit wherever you are bringing your body, you know, you're that guy with the shopping bag standing in front of the tank. Uh, you you're are, on mission. You are that guy with the shopping bag. You, you are God's greatest joy and gift to the world. You are. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I've been talking today with the Reverend Dr. Mary-Kate Morse. Mary-Kate, thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome, Amber, and I pray the Lord bless you in this wonderful work to encourage and help others. The Lord bless you. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Our producer is Drew Miller. For next week, we're rounding up some bishop friends who were at Lambeth who can speak on what they saw and heard from their perspectives at the conference, what they're taking back to their diocese, and what they think happens next for the communion. Until then, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and it's been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.